Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, we interview inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. We're all about yoga, movement, and meditation, and all of that good, good stuff that we love to share with the world. I hope you're having an absolutely wonderful day. I'm doing great and cannot wait to get this episode out to you. Before I get into it though, I wanted to talk about some events I've been attending here in Melbourne lately, and that is the Yoga Life Satsangs hosted by Janet Lowndes and Lee Blaschke, two amazing teachers who we've actually had on the podcast a while back. Now these are great gatherings where we've been delving into the philosophies and principles of yoga and I've personally gotten a lot out of them. Now Janet or Lee haven't asked me to talk about this on the podcast, I've just had such a good experience I wanted to share it with you. And the last couple have held some interesting discussions around cultural appropriation and the privilege we have as Westerners. And some other topics include being authentic as a teacher and really connecting with your students. Now, there's still a few sessions left. I think there's three left. So if you want to come along, I can leave a link for that in the show notes. Now, I'm curious though, what do you think of cultural appropriation in yoga? And what do you think we as teachers or even participants can do about it? I'd love to hear from you. You can join the Flow Artist Podcast community on Facebook or comment on our website at podcast.flowartist.com. I really look forward to hearing from you. All right, so about our episode today. This episode features a recorded conversation between myself, co-host Joe Stewart, and guest Melanie McIntosh. Melanie McIntosh is a yoga teacher and co-owner of Australian Yoga Academy. Mel was one of my teachers and mentors while I was doing my yoga teacher training there, and she specializes in pre- and postnatal yoga, the topic of today's episode. As you'll hear in this episode, I still get a little bit of anxiety when a pregnant lady walks into one of my classes, but Mal has helped provide me with a lot of knowledge and strategies to help there. Also, Mal is running a 50-hour advanced pre- and postnatal yoga teacher training workshop from the 5th of May at Australian Yoga Academy in Paran, Melbourne. The last I checked, there are still a few spaces left, so I definitely recommend you go to australianyogaacademy.com to find out more and I'll leave a link for that in the show notes as well. Alright, that is more than enough from me. Let's get on to the conversation with Mel. Alright, Melanie, thanks so much for being with us today. It's so good to get the chance to speak with you. Perhaps you could just start by telling us a little bit about your background and where you grew up. Well, thank you so much for having me, both of you. Uh, so I grew up in Gippsland in um, in Victoria and uh, moved to Melbourne after I had completed university and, and been traveling around Europe and those sorts of things and came to Melbourne in my early 20s and worked in corporate for, for quite a long time. And, and that's really where I my, my love for yoga started to come to be. But before that, I'd had no experience in it whatsoever. It was something that I was introduced to by a really good friend of mine. Oh, so like discovering it as an adult to help you deal with stress from work. Yeah, exactly. So it was one of those things that I, I had a really niggly back injury as well. So it, which is not really an injury, but just one of those niggly backs that I think you get from just sitting at desks all day and not moving, you know, within your full range of motion. And one of my friends had said to me, oh, you should come to yoga. And it's 
sounded great because the stress of corporate life can be really quite overwhelming as well. Any key teachers that you've really like helped you along your yoga journey? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it was one of the funny things I I distinctly remember being in the Dimmick's bookshop on Collins Street and I was, you know, swanning about in the, the health and wellbeing section and I came across BKS Iyengar's Light on Yoga and I was captivated, absolutely captivated by what he had to say and how he moved his body and the things that he was able to do and and then also that was my that was this was a little after I had started my yoga practice but then that was really my introduction to things like the eight limbs of yoga so looking at it from a really holistic perspective so I hadn't before that I really had no idea about yamas and niyamas and where asana sat in relation to pranayama and so on and so forth from the beginning like you're obviously really drawn into the deeper layers of this practice like more than the physical well I probably no like initially (laughs) I think I think I think you know it was very much about what can I do with my body and just that it made you feel good you know when you speak to people all the time you say you know why do you practice yoga what keeps you coming back well because it makes me feel great one of my teacher trainees yesterday said it makes me feel like magic (laughs) and I thought that was a really beautiful way of explaining it so you know without over intellectualizing things really you just say well it makes me feel good and that's why I do it so and then out of that I think came my interest into you know those deeper layers and I guess that interest into why is this making me feel good more yeah. so than just exercise might. Totally. Yeah, for sure. And and I think one of the things is when you don't do some of those things, you realize as in don't do things like meditation and you don't breathe properly, then you notice the ramifications for not doing does that make sense? And then you realize, well, that's that, you know, this is why I do this because it helps to keep me centered or it helps to keep me balanced or, you know, more patient or whatever it might be. Were those personal benefits the reason why you decided to start teaching or mm. is there another story there? Oh, well, that's a good question. I think I'd been working in, in human resources and change management for a really long time and I knew that it wasn't, I, I felt like I was good at what I did, but I just didn't want to keep doing it. It wasn't where I saw myself in 10 years or 15 years time. And I'd started to be involved with natural therapies as well. I decided to study to be a naturopath and I thought that would be a lovely pairing. Yoga could go really well together. I didn't finish those naturopathic studies, but they've been invaluable for me putting that together from a yoga perspective. Obviously, now you teach at Australian Yoga Academy and you're actually a part owner there. So how did that relationship begin? Mm, It was a a wonderful relationship with Dominique and Anthony when I completed my teacher training there, like like you did, Ron. Mm -hmm. And through through that process, I identified early on and I think so did they that they would like me to work with them. Mm -hmm. Um, which I did as soon as teacher training finished. And so that was in at the end of 2006. And and so I was working teaching general yoga classes. And then in about 2008, I joined the lecturing team. So actually delivering the teacher training program. And, you know, that just grew. And we just, my involvement in AYA just became bigger and bigger. And it was what I loved. You know, you just do more and more. And we just all felt like that worked really well together. So in around about 2011, I think it was, I was invited to become part of the the ownership team. So mm-hmm. yeah, so it was just a, a wonderful, you know, building of relationships. Nice. And I know they sort of, they almost describe their teacher training as a, a year-long interview process. Mm. So it's sort of interesting that you both came to that mm. realization that you wanted to work with each other. Yeah. And 
I, I do wonder as well, what was the the jump like moving from sort of teaching general yoga classes mm. to moving to lecturing other teachers to be? Mm. That's a great question and, and a really interesting one. And I think it just continues to evolve as well. So I don't think that's actually stopped. Yep. And we learn so much from the people who come in to, to, to work with us from, from a teacher training perspective. So getting to know the students and getting to know their backgrounds and their stories. And that's continuously colouring how I deliver my modules and we just have such a lovely time working together and 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 learning from each other but it it can be can be a little challenging sometimes too especially perhaps when you don't see not eye to eye but you don't have consistent views but Mm -hmm. that's part of being human it's okay to disagree yeah absolutely (laughs) and so do you mean like with the other people who are teaching some of the other units or with the teacher trainees themselves no i think and when i say disagree it's not really a disagreement it's a different point of view yeah we, we can see it from different points of view and our own experience again really colors how we how we teach and where we come from Mm -hmm. and and that's that's great because it's really diverse and it's a very respectful environment and sometimes there'll be a situation you know where as a lecturer I say no we're doing it this way because here's why but then understanding that people bring their own experiences to the table as well and there's definitely a lot yeah. of traditional yoga texts like say mm. light on yoga yeah. where there's some really firm opinions totally. and there are lots of different points of view around alignment and even yeah. if there is the right alignment yeah. that will work for everyone yeah. so I think it's like a really powerful part of the learning process mm. just to learn that there are lots of different points mm-hmm. of view and there's no one right thing that's going to work no. for everyone. No, it's a really good point. And uh, my background was very much in, in the Iyengar space. And, you know, I think a lot of people would look at the Iyengar yoga tradition as being quite specific, uh, very much from an alignment perspective. We use the props to do this. If you don't achieve, let's say, the posture so it looks this way, we alter it or, or so that it looks right. And I guess we're I've come from over the course of my teaching journey to where I am now is it's I'm not interested so much in how it looks but how does it feel Mm. it's got to be about that felt sense so that's really where from an evolution perspective where I was to where I am now and I'm sure in 10 years time that will be different as well but for me right at this point in time it's how does it feel and you would have another layer of this because I know prenatal <clears> yoga <throat> and postnatal yoga is one of your specialties. Mm. And there's even more contradictory points of view yeah. when it comes to prenatal practice and postnatal practice. Mm, and Very much so. And I can admit this really confusing, really confusing. It's confusing for me. It's confusing for the students. It's confusing for when I'm teaching the, the teacher trainees and they, they pull out, a, let's say, a traditional text and they say, but the, the text says that this is okay and we say, but how does it feel? And who, who was the target audience at that stage? Were they people who were perhaps practicing yoga every single day as opposed to the modern Western female who is sitting perhaps at a desk most of the time and coming into a class once a week. So that's a really different story and people in those situations have different needs. Was it through your own pregnancy that you discovered prenatal yoga and discovered your love for it? Completely. Before that, (laughs) people, you know, the prenatal students would come into the class and think, oh God, please go away. I was so so worried about, you know, injuring them or being in a situation where I was putting themselves or the baby at harm and not knowing. So, so uh, yes, through being 
pregnant myself and and practicing you know during my pregnancy I I, I gained a lot of confidence in then actually establishing uh, prenatal classes at AYA and they've been running ever since 2010. And I do feel that your prenatal teaching does come from a real lived experience obviously Mm. because I feel your take on it is very restorative Mm. and as a man I guess I can only imagine the the discomfort and Mm. you know um, other I guess I don't know if I'd call them problems, but challenges, challenges, yes, <laughs> that are associated with pregnancy. So yeah, no, it's really beneficial for me to have your perspective on that. Mm, oh, no, it's it's a, again a good question, and I, and I think that yeah, as having been through two pregnancies and and delivering two babies, then of course I you know I have have a level of experience that I can bring to my teaching, but at the same time, even pregnancy to pregnancy, they're mm. so different. And person to person, they're so different. And so it's great that I've got that experience there in the background, but it doesn't mean everything. And I'm really very aware of some some lovely prenatal teachers who've never had children, you know, and even even some fellas yeah, as yeah. well, you know, who are quite comfortable teaching prenatal students. And uh, so I don't think it, it's everything to have actually gone through that experience yourself. I, for one, I, I still feel a bit of anxiety if I see a pregnant lady come into my class. In one of my classes, there is a young pregnant woman who she just knows what to do. So mm-hmm. I can actually not worry Relax. about her too mm-hmm. too much and just sort of give the occasional option if I feel like she needs it. But I was wondering if you've got any advice for people who might be feeling that anxiety when a pregnant person comes into their class. Mm, yeah, well, it's a, it's a really understandable feeling to, to have. Like I said, I felt the same way. And I think probably the first thing is to think when, when you're first speaking with that student, if they have any major concerns, I would imagine from a pregnancy perspective, I would imagine that they wouldn't be in a general yoga class. I imagine that they would seek out a dedicated prenatal teacher. So we probably have to assume and take from what they're telling us that if if they're, they're feeling really good and things are going well and there's no major concerns, then they're a lot more robust than we actually think they are. So, you know, I used to say sometimes I'm pregnant, I'm not dying. So <laughs> it's okay. Um, but that, you know, coming from the, the perspective of being a yoga teacher and being presumably quite body aware. And that's also an interesting point too. I think when you have students who are all who have been your students before they fall pregnant that's a very different story in comparison to the people who walk in the door for the first time at 25 weeks pregnant or 12 weeks pregnant, whenever saying hi I'm pregnant I've never met you before my doctor said or this person said I should do some yoga and so we probably have some more questions to ask that person and it is quite common that people, mm. this will be their first yoga experience because yep. once they get pregnant, they mm. want to start taking really good care of themselves or yeah. maybe they are starting to get some aches and pains. Mm. So I have definitely had many students who it's their first pregnancy mm-hmm. and it's their first yoga class. Yeah. So everything is new. And it's a big challenge because they're, they're not used to moving in those directions or, or creating those shapes with their body perhaps they they haven't maybe they haven't been doing very much exercise maybe they have and that can the people who are quite physically active a prenatal practice especially as I teach it as you said run quite from a restorative perspective can be a bit of a challenge for them because they think well, when are we going to start moving? So I guess one of my approaches to, to the students that I meet for the first time when they're joining us 
in practice for the first time is to ask them, what do you want to get out of your practice? Because that helps me to decide and to guide them. So in certain, sometimes, occasionally, my recommendation for them is to go upstairs and do a different class. Because I, you know, based on what they're telling me they want, it might be that they don't get that in prenatal. But they might change their mind as well. So the, the door's always open for them to come back down into, into prenatal and, and, to, and to blend the classes together. It doesn't have to be an either-or situation. I think it's really nice as well to begin your relationship with them with giving them a bit of autonomy because yeah. I'm sure when you are pregnant, there's so many people telling you what you should and what you shouldn't oh, do that it's it a, would yeah, get very really emotive. Yeah, definitely. There seems to be a lot of pregnant women say, you know, what's happened? I'm Suddenly I've become public property and everybody wants to touch me and everybody wants to tell me their stories and all of these sorts of things. And so, yeah, it can be very overwhelming, especially when you've you know, you're going through it for the first time. Are there some core principles of prenatal yoga that you really bring into every practice? Yeah, with with the way that I teach prenatal, and this will be different teacher to teacher. So this is, I'm just coming at it from how I teach. But my biggest focus is really on working with the, the, the ladies to understand that they have the capacity to control and to drive their nervous system and that's primarily through the breath so we always will start with some breath awareness whether that's just relaxed abdominal breathing or whether that's ujjayi work or perhaps there's a a method of breathing where it's almost like a sigh on the exhalation so they make um, breath with sound so it's a soft ha sound for example that beautiful opening of the mouth and just letting the sound come out with an elongated exhalation so there'll always be that side of that side of things in in the practice and it's important to me to explain to them that the reason that we're doing this is because dysfunctional breathing will have a big impact on your nervous system but the good news is is that you can identify that so let's work through what some of those signs might be and you can identify that and then use your breath to bring things back into you know, under control or to that, you know, equilibrium state that we're looking for. Mm, I saw this other study that there's this really powerful correlation between your stress levels mm-hmm. and your pain levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even like, I'm sure it would be for birth as yeah. well, but even if there's any kind of like pelvic sensitivity going yeah. on, the yeah. women who reported the most pain were not necessarily the women who had the most damage. Yeah. It was the people who were the most stressed. Yeah. And that was a much bigger correlation than the actual MRI would show. Yeah, exactly. And there's been a lot of studies to, to show the, to show that, you know, to quite an extreme, very extreme, for example, you know, there might be somebody with a bulging disc within their neck which you know for all intents and purposes should be that person should be experiencing a significant amount of pain yet because how they're managing their 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 mind body experience they're not they're not experiencing it to any you know where near the level that people would be expecting them to so Similarly, from a prenatal perspective, going through the pregnancy, going through the birthing side of things, again, our our scientific studies that we've got available to us now are showing us and telling us that through our holistic yoga practice, things like perceived pain scores are lower, lower back concerns, discomfort, leg and hip issues, and so on and so forth is the perception of the pain is is greatly reduced. And I guess as well, experiencing that 
in a yoga class would be a really good confidence building and experiential practice of bringing that awareness right up to the birth. Mm. So having that, it's like a microcosm of how you can use your breath to manage the sensations in your body and Mm. kind of experience that mind-body connection that would Mm. just be so powerful when you're moving towards this really massive event. Yeah, and sometimes I liken it to running a marathon and and I I explain, you know, we talk about the fact that, you know, if I decided to run a marathon – in October, I'm not going to decide in September to start training for it. I, I presumably would be doing a lot beforehand and and preparing for the birth that you're hoping to have and, and, and working towards. It, you know, needs for many of us, not everybody, but for many of us, it's helpful if we start that preparation early. So that could be around understanding the role of the nervous system and how the breath intersects that. It could be about starting to cultivate states of santosha so that from a contentment perspective we we start to be flexible between our two ears yeah so if the birth doesn't go how I would like it to go am I going to tie myself up in knots about that and think I'm a bad mother these sorts of things and then from a physical perspective because there is a physical element obviously to the practice as well and I'm a huge fan of the active birthing movement where in the 80s, a, a lady by the name of Janet Belaskis really introduced active birthing as a, as a direct countermeasure to the active controlled birthing situation that was happening at the time. So controlling birth down to 12 hours. There's actually documentation to say, let's, let's control birth to 12 hours. That's ridiculous. But it's just based on doctor's convenience. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it would be about, you know, things like, yeah, let's make sure that we can be convenient for everybody. We can tell the mother, well, between now and here, your baby will be born. And that doesn't, life doesn't work that way. So she was instrumental in sort of bringing and giving the power back or empowering women that they were responsible and they were in charge of their birth and it wasn't going to be something that was necessarily medicalized and driven by somebody else and so the active birthing movement really highlighted that certain positions certain physical positions were so helpful to birthing so from a yoga perspective a lot of those positions are emulated in yoga postures and somehow sometimes it's just more about mobilization and increasing range in let's say ankles and and knees and hips and so on and so forth to make birthing as easy as possible because i'd read this in multiple places lying down is a terrible position to give birth in for a woman and it's only for the medical team's convenience that that was ever a thing exactly so if you look at you know often i'll say let's look at what happens in in the natural world let's look at what's happening you know in third world countries or where where birthing is is not medicalized which woman in her right mind would give birth on her back now having said that I have come across a couple of women who said that that was what was comfortable for them so if that was comfortable for them fine that's their birthing experience but for the most part when you lay on your back your tailbone curls up and under it closes off the pelvic outlet so baby almost has to go uphill Mm -hmm. before they can come out this is not helpful this is you know we're not using gravity to our advantage we're not able to move as much and then and aside from all of that, what's happening to blood flow to the baby and to the uterus. So there's a reduced 
rate of blood flow both to the placenta and to the fetus. Not helpful. Well, yeah, that's one of the contraindications for prenatal yoga. Exactly. Don't lie on your back for too no, long. Exactly. So, you know, we know that if someone was pregnant and they ended up in emergency for whatever reason and they needed to be treated on their back, they would they would raise the right hip up to reduce that vena cava compression. So that happens. You're going sometimes that does happen. And occasionally you will have somebody even in a very advanced pregnant state say to you say to you, I feel really comfortable on my back and I don't I'm not experiencing any of those signs of discomfort that you're talking about. Um dizziness, nausea, difficulty breathing, those sorts of things. So on the one hand you you, you have to say to yourself, Well, maybe that's perfect for that person and it can be a lot to do with where the baby is positioned and they move all the time and so I might say to somebody in that respect well that's okay for you right now but just make sure that you check next time you come to be on your back because baby might move and may your experiences might be different I've had people come to my class who Mm. said like I go to sleep on my side, but I wake up, up on, on my, my back. back. Like, could I be hurting my baby? Yeah, it's really normal. People, they can get a little panicked, like, oh, no. You know what? I really think that if there was an issue, your body would send you a really direct physiological sign to move. Yeah, uh, there, there's that's a little contentious. There's some, some people who say that maybe blood occlusion is happening even if the mother doesn't feel it instinctively. I, I, I just can't see that happening. That's my instinctive, not scientific opinion. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, yeah, so I've had similar situations where people have gone, oh, no, I'm on my back when I wake up, you know, am I damaging my baby? So, and also yeah. the reduced blood supply, it's to the mother, not the baby, right? Like but it's to, to the both. mother's brain. Yeah, I guess it is both because yeah. they're so connected. Yeah, it's both. So the blood flow... Is, is being restricted to the mother's cardiovascular system. And if the mother's cardiovascular system is, is impacted, then clearly the babies will be as, you know, the, the delivery of, of oxygen to the baby is going to be impacted as well. So it's probably not a great idea, let's say from <laughs> 20 weeks onward, or if you feel it beforehand. And a lot of people feel not even on their back, they might be slumped in an armchair or uh, like a deck chair or something along those lines, or they're in a comfy comfy chair at home or even you know sitting on a plane something along those lines and they'll start to feel a little odd and it's just a prompt let's let's move need to make more space hello ran here just popping back in to talk about our patreon page yes patreon patreon is a way where you can support our podcast from as little as one dollar a month just one dollar Higher tiers get great benefits, such as shout-outs on the podcast. This week, I'd like to thank Janet Lowndes for joining the party. Thank you so much, Janet. Some of our supporters also get access to extra content. And speaking of which, we've filmed a short bonus video with Mal, and that will go up on our Patreon page in about a week or so. And last week, I put up a short video with Emma Kenner talking about how she navigates the perilous seas of social media. So go and check that one out. We were able to transcribe our recent episode with Amy Wheeler thanks to our Patreon supporters and we are incredibly grateful. We should have enough funds for another episode soon and we'll put that up for a vote. Which episode should we transcribe? Now, if you'd like to learn more, just go to patreon.com slash flowartistpodcast and I'll leave a link in our show notes. All right, let's get back to our conversation with Mel. Mel. 
And so I guess that's brought us to the first one of those difference of opinions, different points of views. Mm-hmm. There are so many of as to mm-hmm. what's helpful and what's not helpful mm-hmm. in prenatal yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to ask your point of view on another one because it's mm-hmm. a real opposite sides of the coin in Mm. terms of what's recommended Mm. some yoga styles are all about hip opening postures Mm. creating space to prepare for the birth Mm. and other styles are all about cultivating stability Mm. and strength Mm. in those muscles and not doing any of those wide leg open Mm. forward bends yeah what's your point of view well i think it depends you know it's it's a really it depends on what's going on for for the mother so i don't my overarching comment on that is i don't think we need to do have an over presentation within any of those practices that is all about just hip opening there's no need to overdo the hip opening the the body's going to be producing a good amount of relaxin the hormone which will help to soften those joints and ligaments to to make the passage the of the baby a little bit more easier more freer it allows the bones to move and, and those sorts of things and so where I feel cautious about that is that a lot of people who come in, a lot of mothers who've been practicing for, for quite a long time who maybe are already quite flexible, they don't need any more flexibility. That is destabilizing. And that might contribute to things like pubic symphysis pain, pelvic instability or sacroiliac joint dysfunction they don't need any more movement it is actually helpful for them to contain and to develop some strength in and around those areas and one of the biggest things that we can do in our standing postures for example uh, like virabhadrasana 2 or or vira 1 is to make sure that the glutes are really active yeah so keep keep those glutes really on and firing so that the the lower body is supported the muscles in and around those pelvic joints are really kept stable i find because i do pilates mm-hmm. as well and glutes are something that i really love to work on with mm-hmm. my prenatal clients mm-hmm. because all of the strong abdominal work mm. is not really going to be helpful for them anymore but they still want to feel strong and powerful and active as they mm. move through their pregnancy mm. and also if they're starting to experience a bit of lower back pain mm. as their shape changes mm. and their balance changes the glutes are such a useful mm. area to work on to help with all yeah. of those things yeah totally totally agree and also the drawing of the belly and the baby in uh, sometimes I talk in general, or in not not so much in general class, but in dedicated prenatal class about feeling almost like you've got your arms around your baby and you're drawing your baby in towards your spine. So you're reducing that sway back effect because as we know, the, the spine shifts and changes its, uh, its presentation throughout the pregnancy. And part of that's just about balancing out the weight of the baby that's pulling you forward tends to tilt the pelvis forward, the bottom sticks out behind us. So we you know need to sort of contain that in and draw we're not really contain like drawing in belly muscles you know particularly in the latter stages of pregnancy they're sort of a bit woody and what's that can't find that anymore <laughs> but that feeling of just drawing in and being contained is helpful yeah i actually used to cue like gently hugging your baby in yeah similar and that yeah. actually brings me to another thing to be cautious of with mm-hmm. a prenatal practice because i have read that 
too much focus mm-hmm. on abdominal work, mm. even in the early phases, can contribute to rectus diastasis because yes. those muscles are more tight. So yeah. that area is not as flexible. Mm. Yeah, that there's no um, there's no correlation between how tight your abs are, whether you've got a six pack or not before you fall pregnant. There's no correlation between that and whether your rectus abdominis will separate during pregnancy. The statistics are about seventy percent of pregnant women experience some level of separation and it's really normal it's not harmful to them it's not harmful to the baby occasionally I have come across someone who has said that they could they actually felt that occurring generally through a back bend now I remember even myself when I was in uh, postures like up cat down cat just on all fours just inhale looking up towards the sky arching my back that during the latter stages of the pregnancy I could really feel that shearing so rectus abdominis it attaches at the sternum and also at the pubic bone so as you start as baby starts to grow and the, the uterus expands then that in itself is a stress if you like on on those on those belly muscles and when we go through quite especially gravity assisted back bends so where the belly's being pulled towards the ground when we're on let's say in chaturanga for long periods of time those sorts of things they can and and also twists so really sort of i mean know that we twists are one thing that we obviously close belly twists we take out of the equation quite early on but twists can contribute to that separation as well so it's not to say that you can't do any backbending pregnancy but it probably needs to be pulled back Sometimes a lot of women like that just from a chest opening perspective. They are able to open the chest, throw the collarbones back and feel quite expansive across the the front of the chest because breasts start to get quite large and heavy and they start to feel like they're being pulled forward. So that can be nice. So we just approach it slowly. That's so interesting, actually, because when I've done prenatal Mm -hmm. Pilates training, they were saying that that curl up flexion action Mm. is actually the action that separates rectus abdominis so I guess it's just too much movement in Mm -hmm. any direction and feeling like you're pulling on those muscles as you move that's right so when we think about a sit-up position for example which we might experience from yoga in in postures like navasana boat pose for example and it's a really clear when you look at somebody who's pregnant it's really clear when if they were on their back, knees bent, soles of the feet onto the floor, and they do like a little mini sit-up, and you can see if the belly is tenting or doming, it's an indicator that the abdominal muscles have started to separate and the organs underneath are starting to be pushed forward, almost like a hernia, you know, in a way. So, yeah, so I think two things are there. The the expanding of the uterus and the, expand, the, the growing of the belly encourages the separation and then the sit-up type positions can exacerbate it even more and obviously we probably wouldn't be giving these positions to people as exercises in class but it's also a position that you might use to get up when you've been lying down so even if it's not an actual posture it's the transitions Mm. as well that are important yeah yeah so a lot of what i go through in prenatal is a little bit about day-to-day activities that will support where they're at in their pregnancy and exactly that's that's a really key one coming up from let's say if they've been in bed and they're on their back that they don't 
jackknife forward to sit up that they roll over onto their side. It's something that I go through in, in prenatal when they're coming out of Shavasana, for example, or that they roll to their side. Anytime they've been on the back, they roll to the side and use their hands and their knees to press them up. Other day-to-day movements which might contribute to issues that they're experiencing in, in pregnancy could be particularly in the areas of the SIJs, the sacroiliac joints. That's a really common area to, to feel discomfort. So I might sort of talk to them about, well, how do you squat down onto the floor? Let's instead of it being a parallel foot squat, let's stagger the squat, one foot forward, one foot back. And then this helps to keep pelvic floor stable, especially when they come up. So not too much low squatting in let's say a yogic squat don't need to do that be careful as you come up be careful how you get into and out of the car so pretend you're a royal pop your bottom in then swing your legs in together (laughs) and getting out same thing knees together swing the legs out these things will help to just contain some of those tricky areas and squats were something i was going to ask you about Mm -hmm. as well because often that would be people's first go-to thought if they're like Mm -hmm. right I want to strengthen my glutes Mm -hmm. how do you feel about squats in a prenatal practice yeah well to start off with you know when you're in a squat the the glutes are stretching they're not contracting so you know it's the standing up where we get the contraction happening and there is a, a school of thought which says that if particularly if it's a parallel foot squat you stand up it's difficult to maintain pelvic floor awareness as you do that so you're carrying a significant extra amount of weight and then you're going to ask maybe a musculoskeletal framework that is not as stable as what it has been in the past because relaxin has really started to impact the skeleton but you're going to ask an unstable skeleton to support a big weight as it's bearing weight and none of that is a good idea so squats I think can be good if they're supported I don't have any issue I think they can be really helpful particularly about increasing that mobilization in in hips and in knees and ankles if that might be a good position for them to explore during birthing. Yeah, so not a lot of us are happy squatting down on the floor if that's not been part of our regular day-to-day movement. So they can be good. I'm happy to do it, but I like for it to be supported. I think it's great as well if maybe that's the position that a woman does want to give birth in Mm. to bring in some movements that can activate those muscles Mm. in a less complex way Mm. and a way that doesn't necessarily involve as much full body Mm. balance and so many other things happening. Mm. Yeah. And I think also too, that having really significant preconceived ideas about this is how I'm going to give birth. I'm going to give birth squatting. Well, that might happen and it may well, but during the course of the labor, you're probably going to move quite a lot a woman most women that at least I've spoken to and and my own experiences as well is you don't tend to stay in one spot moving actually feels pretty good you know when you're going through when you're going through labor for a number of different reasons but yeah you might give birth squatting but you might only be there in interim periods maybe not yeah, going to squat it out for like 23 <laughs> hours. No. <laughs> no, I would be very impressed. Very, very impressed. But then also too, like you have a look at Janet Belaskis's book, Active Birth, has got some little bit scary 1970s photos in there. <laughs> but you have a look at the women who have given birth in those particular photos in a squatting state and they're generally being supported by somebody. They've generally, someone standing 
one or two people are standing behind them sort of hooking their arms underneath the woman's arms so that they can really relax and let go and so that can be lovely but you know that's there's a constant ability to and this is why and another one of the things that I try to really focus on in my in my prenatal classes is you know let's find positions that make you feel good let's move from all fours to let's say an extended child's pose to a squat or a half squat a half squat's actually really quite nice where one leg's bent back behind you almost like in a half virasana and the other knees pointing up to the sky that can be a really nice supported position and just as nice for open uh, you know opening through the the pelvic outlet area what about inversions because i know i've seen a picture of the lovely dominique salerno in a headstand whilst mm. A few months pregnant so mm. I assume that she is absolutely fine to do that yeah and I too enjoyed headstand during my pregnancies as well but I think it, that is a really a depends it, mm. it really depends it depends on where you're at in your practice so if somebody came in to me who had never done yoga before then this is not the time for us to start practicing <laughs> headstand of course but if you've got a really if you've got a really developed practice already and you're really mind body aware and you can get into you can get into things safely and supported as well occasionally I have very experienced yoga teachers or yoga practitioners coming into a general class and they still want to do some practices like you know quite extreme inversions and depends on who they are well depends on whether I'm comfortable with that and I would generally prefer them to be either me spotting them or having them closer to a wall but that's that's the extreme side of things so it can work but if I was giving advice to to a yoga teacher trainee I would say that it's probably best to avoid those sorts of things in your classes just from a risk perspective it's just it's a little risky what a pregnant woman does in her own time is her own business and if she's working with a teacher that's really happy for her to do those things and knows that she has a really strong level of mind body awareness then it might be okay but then we look at things like well where is she at in her pregnancy and if baby is if she's quite far along in her pregnancy and baby is engaged then Tipping yourself upside down, not a great idea. Yeah, because you're moving in the opposite direction. Baby's head head down and engaged, let's leave baby there. So being in inversions and from that perspective for, you know, whatever the inversion might be, even downward facing dog for long periods is not necessarily fantastic mm. because they're already where they should be. Yeah. On the flip side, if baby's in breach, being upside down is maybe helpful. Yeah, so we find maybe find, you know, not necessarily a headstand, but other ways of bringing somebody into that forward presentation, which might help baby do a bit of a backflip. And so this is definitely an area of using your words mindfully. How would you express it if you had someone in your class and maybe you were teaching a range of people, like Mm -hmm. not just prenatal, and you gave a few options and one of them was a prenatal option and Mm -hmm. then say the other one was something like a forearm balance or a Mm -hmm. headstand Mm -hmm. and the pregnant member of the class Mm. wanted to do the other option, which Mm. you did not feel was safe for them. Mm. How do you balance giving them that personal autonomy? Mm. It's their body. It's their practice with expressing it's my class. I'm responsible for your safety. Mm. I don't think you should do this pose. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And it's going to depend a little bit again, again on, on the student. And this is my my feeling on the matter, the student and, and my relationship with that student. So again, if, if I feel like they 
have a good level of self-awareness and they don't have any issues around things like me that their blood pressure is good because that would be another issue blood pressure can be quite elevated during pregnancy so if that was the case then you know going into an inversion in addition to the stuff that we've just spoken about would also be an unwise thing to do so if I felt like they were everything physiologically and and emotionally was right for them then okay as long as I was there to support them then I'm, I might be okay with it but if I had any reservations whatsoever then I would say to them, I'm really uncomfortable with you doing that. Can you please stop? Occasionally, and this does happen, occasionally people will just go along their merry way and do whatever they like. So that's tough. That's a really tough position to be put in as a teacher. And sometimes people will just say, well, my doctor told me I could do this. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess, you know, from that perspective, if you feel really, really strongly about it, then it has happened to me in the past. Not very often, I have to say, but it has happened, you know, once or twice where I've said, I'm really uncomfortable with you doing that. I've asked you to perhaps let's take a different option, one that I feel is safer for you and for the baby. And if you're not going to be respectful of my job as a teacher, then maybe this isn't the class for you. And I think within our rights to say that for anybody who has a special need, so if somebody has a back injury or a, you know, a knee injury or whatever the case may be, and they can, they insist on doing, you know, Padmasana, Lotus pose, I'm like, well, it's not perhaps a good idea if you've got a knee injury. Does it feel good? That's the other question. So that's the other side of it, you know, with working with, with prenatal clients to say, well, do you feel Okay. And if they say they feel okay and I don't think it's a danger to them, maybe I would recommend them not to do it. But if I don't think it's a danger, then I would say, right, we're well informed. You're telling me your doctor's telling you it's okay. You're telling me you feel comfortable. So my recommendation would not to be to do it, but it's your body. I guess you've, you've sort of done your due diligence as yeah. a teacher. Um, I have another question about... Mm-hmm. I guess it's a little bit of a scope of practice and Mm. a little bit of a different points of view. Um, This one's around pelvic floor. Some schools of thought are that a normal yoga teacher who hasn't done extra training, even talking about pelvic floor is out of their scope of practice. Mm. And that's actually not my own point of view. I talk about it all the time. Mm. But I know of many people who have done too much pelvic floor strengthening Mm. and not enough focusing on relaxing Mm. through the pelvic floor who have had problems Mm. during their birth because they have only trained those muscles to engage and not to Mm. relax. What is your point of view of working with pelvic floor Mm. in pregnancy? Mm. And I guess your point of view of yoga teachers teaching about pelvic floor. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think that there's a big difference between pelvic floor and mulabandha. They're totally different things. So and traditional mulabandha with breath, retention particularly the retention side of things is it's inappropriate for a lot of let's say your once a week yoga student just not there yet and that's okay that's where they're at and also for a lot of you know for for prenatal you know that breath retention side of things is not helpful either too much intra-abdominal pressure increases blood pressure so on and so forth but pelvic floor is good 
in my opinion, to work with because that's a, a toning of the those pelvic floor muscles and being really familiar with those. So going back to the point I made about if you were training for a marathon, you would be working on these sorts of things. It's handy to have established a really good connection to pelvic floor prior to pregnancy, during pregnancy. There's no reason why you shouldn't still be able to be accessing those in late pregnancy. And that's going to be really helpful for once baby's here. Even if baby's been born via a C-section, they still need to do some degree of pelvic floor, let's say retoning. Yeah. So even if there's been no damage to pelvic floor during the birthing process itself, there still does need to be a concerted effort there to just re-exercise to re-strengthen that area. But your point about the yoga teachers, for example, and I see this also in Pilates teachers and gymnasts and ballet dancers, where they're so used to containing pelvic floor. The Ashtanga yogis, yoginis are really key in this area. And there's, I have not read anything scientific on this. I don't have any scientific studies to, to go on this. It's a lot more anecdotal. But those those women who have very strong practices where core strengthening and pelvic floor tone is is almost in that hypertonic state then they do need to learn to let it go because just like any other muscle that that muscle those muscles of pelvic floor need to be able to move both ways yeah you wouldn't walk around with like your bicep flexed all the time, all the time no exactly. i do <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is it's a really important one so i don't know that there's a um a, a specific point in the pregnancy i generally start to have a little bit of a one-on-one discussion with my prenatal ladies in the latter stages of third trimester so maybe around that sort of 34 35 week mark to just say to them just notice can you move pelvic floor in the opposite direction do this with an empty bladder always handy empty bladder maybe do it when you're sitting on the toilet but just feel like you can move that those pelvic floor muscles forward and back with the yoga teachers especially the ashtanga yoga um, community ballet dancers gymnasts those sorts of things i might talk to them about that a little bit earlier in the you know within their pregnancy because again i think that it's just an over tightening and it can again this is all anecdotal that i've come across but it may not mean that it's a really easy delivery well, yeah, if those muscles are just really tight mm. and you're trying to squeeze a baby out of mm. there, like yeah. that doesn't sound like it's going to be easy. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no. And we need to, you know, when when we've never done something before as well, you know, most of us are, you know, and, and even if you have given birth before, the second birth will be very different and the subsequent births will be, will be de- very different as well. And, you know, when we haven't done something before, we can, you don't don't have a lot of information to go back on. Yeah, so we adopt our our fallback state and that that fallback state might be to tighten because that's what we're used to doing and i think that's almost a unconscious response mm. to tighten everywhere when you're in a time of mm. an extreme time totally totally you know when you make no mistake about it you know giving birth is stressful and and it can be levels of anxiety around that and when you're actually in the birthing state you know we talk about that being actually quite a sympathetic nervous system position to be in for good reason. Yeah, so, you've got to stay awake for like 23 yeah, hours or something. Yeah, yeah, you want sort of, you know, a lot of hormones circulating around keeping you keeping you alert. But it's going to be helpful to then understand, let's say, that 
when I breathe out through my mouth and I make a long, soft ha sound, even if that's quite a loud, loud ha sound, that's fine. Or a vowel sound, they tend to be the ones that we naturally will adopt. Even if you haven't done any training in those areas, if you're um, a lot of women will just make that sort of low vowel sound through an open mouth. And there's a very strong correlation between a relaxed throat, a relaxed jaw and a relaxed pelvic floor. Yeah, so if we have those two things together, which is why, you know, we practice that soft ha sound through the, and then as we're working through, this is what I do in my prenatal, I start to talk with the ladies about, think about when contractions are peaking and contractions is a bit of a misnomer really because contractions are indicating the, the belly muscles the, the the uterine muscles contracting inward but it, what's happening is that the cervix is opening and so I ask them to try and think about opening of the cervix opening of the mouth softness in the throat and those two things coming together during as contractions are peaking I teach general classes and I was just wondering have you got any general strategies for say you're running a class in a gym and a pregnant person that you've never met before walks in five minutes after the class has started (laughs) (laughs) Um, have you got any general strategies for working with that person and and also I guess keeping the the class at a, a reasonable level of challenge for everyone else in the class yeah, it's just like if somebody else walked in the door with a back injury, for example, you wouldn't you wouldn't adjust the entire practice just for that one person and, and nor would you do that for, you know, your prenatal student either. So it's a that's a massive question really, Ron, because it's one of those that's the tricky thing that all of us yoga teachers face when we're teaching a multi leveled general class situation where we've got lots of different varying levels of experience and injuries or concerns and those sorts of things. So my overarching comment around that is that I want people to practice in a way that makes them feel good. If they're doing something which I think is a danger to them, or in this case, a danger to the baby, then I'll make an adjustment. Mm-hmm. If I can, I'll definitely, you know, depends on where, you know, when they've joined the class. But if I can, I definitely will be asking them about any injuries, any concerns, anything relating to their pregnancy that I need to know about. Uh, and sometimes I'll have a something that was there before the pregnancy. It could be an, a back issue or a knee issue or whatever the case may be. So we need to know a little bit about that too. So quickly getting some of that information. Is there anything that your doctor has told you not to do or your treating medical practitioner or whoever else is supporting you has told you not to do? So if I get, where are you at in your pregnancy? So if I'm 12 weeks as opposed to, you know, 25 weeks, my comfort level in working with that person is going to be different. First trimester, most delicate time so even though they may not be showing unless they tell me I may not even know that they're pregnant and some women don't even you know that that happens as well and I have teacher trainees get themselves a little tied up in knots but oh but they what if they don't tell me I'm like well you can't do anything if they don't tell you mm-hmm. yeah so but once they tell you then you can be responsible so I've got a related question yeah. which is an awkward situation what if you think someone in your class might be pregnant, <laughs> but you don't want to ask them? Mm. 
yeah, that, that happens. And, you know, you particularly, you know, yoga communities, you know, we start to get to know each other really well and you might hear whisperings of this, that or, you know, whatever the case or may be. Or just someone walks in and they've got a bit of a loose top on and they yeah. look a little bit round. Yeah, breasts are a lot, they're, they're, their breasts are bigger. That's a, that's a really key one. I guess just like any other student and in every single class that we teach, it's, it's a good idea to do a check-in with the group either individually when they're checking in at reception or with the group as you close to the beginning of the practice, just to say, just remember if there's stuff that has changed for you that I need to know about, give me a little wave and I'll come over and have a quiet chat with you. So I often ask that question when perhaps they're in child's pose or extended child's pose, heads down, everybody's eyes are you know, toward the floor. There's not a lot of looking around. So if somebody does have something to say, pregnancy not related, it doesn't matter. They can, we can, they can just pop their hand up and most other people wouldn't even know that they've flagged. I must say as well, this is more something I've done in a Pilates practice mm. where there's so much abdominal work. Yeah, I will even say, now if anyone was pregnant or had a yeah. neck injury, you wouldn't do this variation. Yeah. Here's another option for you or yeah. You know, I'd kind of just throw that prenatal mm. contraindication in there with yep. the other health issues I'm talking about yeah. and then do a quick little scan around the room and yeah. see if they've gone for the prenatal option or yeah. not. And, you know, and it can be that that's a good that's a good way of approaching it, too. And the other way that you can do it is that a lot of the prenatal options are very similar to, for example, if somebody has had abdominal surgery or they've got something going on in their belly. Maybe they've had a gastrointestinal upset or, or they've, they've, they've got a digestive system concerned like colitis or IBS or something along those lines, or even high blood pressure. So a lot of those prenatal modifications and suggestions are the same. So in, so you might suspect that somebody is pregnant, but you could pop it together in a bit of a collective fashion. Now, so for those of you who've got any abdominal issues going on, anything going on in your ab, abdominal area, if you're a bit sensitive there, or for those of you who've told me that your blood pressure is a little high, here's the things that we're going to do differently. You know, here's, here's option one is to do this, option two is to do that. And so, yeah, then it means that if somebody is taking that open belly twist instead of a closed belly twist, they're not big red lights over their head saying, hey, everybody, I'm pregnant, because they might not be ready to tell us yet. I also teach at quite a few workplaces, and so sometimes people have told me before they've told the rest of their workmates. Mm. So for those people, I say to them at the start of the class, look, if I say I'm going to give a gentle option, that is That's also the prenatal you. option. That's for yeah. you. Yeah, that, that would be really tricky. I haven't taught in a corporate environment for a long time, but they're sharing information with you as a as a health provider because they feel that it's important and then you have to be sensitive with that information. So that's just like when you're gathering information from a you know current students or new students as they're booking in at reception, that you want to be sensitive to them and not you over there in the red tracksuit pants who's pregnant. This is totally inappropriate. But yeah, so having that little like here's our cue these are our signals Mm. so they know that that you're being you're you're looking after them I do have one question that comes up all the time because Mm -hmm. it's the one pose that we pretty much do every yoga practice Mm. and that's shavasana oh yeah what are your favorite prenatal shavasana alternatives Mm. and do you have any that don't involve props for those workplace classes Mm. oh that's a good one I think probably the easiest 
non-propped Shavasana alternative is on the side. Now, everyone talks about being on the left side in pregnancy, but sometimes depending on where baby is positioned, being on the left, like let's say, for example, their head's right up underneath your ribs on the left-hand side, and then you lay to that side, that could feel really uncomfortable. You're not going to turn blue and explode if you lay on the right. It's fine. So be on the right. So that's easiest. That's the easiest option. The other easiest option, particularly if, if you don't have a lot of props, is to just sit against a wall sit upright against a wall if that or or even just sit upright in into a meditative position that's fine too yeah Mm, the young lady in my class she sits herself up against the wall every every class so yeah got that one covered yeah (laughs) yeah I do know you've got your pre and postnatal workshop coming up. Would you mm. like to talk about that? Yeah, oh, that's that's lo- lovely. Thank you. So <laughs> we've been really focused at AYA in terms of putting together programs that are really focused on continuing professional development for our already established teaching community. So I think you know, foundation level teacher training, there's lots and lots and lots of that available. But once you are already qualified, then you know if you have an, a special interest where do you go to and what do you do and who do you work with so I've been thinking for a long time about putting together a, um, a dedicated pre and postnatal advanced training together and so I, I have finally done that and it's recognized through Yoga Alliance so it's a 50 hour program so it's it's six full days and it's going to be you know something that really covers you know, all aspects of pre and postnatal And is that aimed more at people who want to specialize in pre and postnatal yoga or do you think anyone who's interested in in sort of developing uh, their teaching will want to come to that? Mm, I I suspect that it will be the former, that it would be something that would attract the people who really have an interest in working with with women, mostly in that prenatal capacity. But I'm getting a lot of interest in the dedicated postnatal space, which is is quite interesting um, because I think that's really an area that we most people ignore we we just assume that once baby's here everything's back to normal and that's not necessarily the case so I suspect it's going to be mostly people who are looking for for prenatal but it's anyone who's teaching teaching students and most of us teach our prenatal students within a general class setting so I, I hope it's going to be valuable for them too I'm sure it is. And I've been to uh, some of your prenatal workshops in the past and they've been very helpful for me and uh, I guess alleviating the anxiety I do (laughs) feel when a young pregnant woman comes into my class. So Mm. yeah, I can definitely recommend it. Thank you. I must say as well, the options that I've learned in prenatal trainings have really been helpful for other health issues, like things like vertigo or high Mm. blood pressure. Like you already have these options Mm. in mind. Mm -hmm. So even if it's not an area that you want to specialize Mm. in, it's a really great way of just building your like toolbox Mm. of different alternative poses, no matter what people have going on. Yeah. I think that's a, a key challenge for for us as yoga teachers when, especially when we are working in general class situations and you have so many different levels and so many different issues that people are are dealing with so you know just being what's the word it, it's almost like practicing coming up with alternatives pretty quickly sometimes you really have to think on the spot as you both would know uh, especially when someone halfway through the class says oh, I forgot to tell you about my sore back knee whatever the case <laughs> okay all right, let's let's find. Oh, or that I'm 15 weeks pregnant. I'm like, okay, <laughs> right, let's do this instead. So yeah, it can be really helpful just to have those different options in our toolkit. 
I guess to close things off, if you could distill everything you've learned and everything you teach, and this can be about pre and postnatal yoga or anything in general, mm. really, if you could distill everything you've learned or teach down to one core lesson, what mm. do you think that thing would be? Oh, it's such a good question. It's such a hard one to answer. I think the biggest thing that has changed for me over the course of my teaching, so when I said earlier that my background was very much from an Iyengar space and as as I said, they, they tend to be quite, quite rigid and quite specific and so on and so forth. And lately my, my teaching has moved to that felt sense to understanding and going at coming at our practice and coming at our teaching about how does it feel? And I read some beautiful quotes by Desika Char actually. So Kristen Macharya's son, Desika Char, who, who said, and he was quoting his father as well. And he, he basically said that we have to remember yoga's for the self it's not about me as the teacher. It's not about the group of 30 or 20 or however many people are in your class. It's about that particular one person. And so that's really where I feel our power and benefit and and the beauty of being the privilege that we have in working with students is that it's all about them and their experience. And, and, and we're just merely a guide. Beautiful. Oh, thank you so much. That was yeah. lovely. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. We had to skip a few questions because we're out of time. <laughs> so we could clearly have spoken for much longer. So thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge with us. It's been great. Well, thank I you. very much appreciate being here. Thank oh, you. Well, thank you. All right. And that was our episode with Mel. I hope you got a lot out of it. I know I did. And again, if you'd like to know more, you can find out about Mel's workshop in our show notes at podcast.flowartist.com. So head on over. On a side note, Joe runs a baby's welcome class at our studio, Garden of Yoga, on Wednesday morning. Now, it's not a mums and bubs yoga class, but babies are welcome and we've been witnessing some extreme cuteness at the studio. So why not join the cuteness? We'd love to see you there. So big news. Our next episode is episode number 50. Yes, our 50th full length episode and we have a great guest, Jivana Heyman. Jivana is a US-based yoga teacher, yoga therapist, creator of the Accessible Yoga Conferences all over the world, and author of the forthcoming book, Accessible Yoga, Poses and Practices for Every Body. Accessibility of yoga is a subject that is really important to Joe and myself, so we think that Jivana is the best possible guest for our very special 50th episode. Alright, so as usual our theme song is Baby Robots by Ghost Soul and is used with permission. Get his music from ghostsoul.bandcamp.com Thank you so, so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Aroha nui. Big, big love.